Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Scott Budnick. Scott is a film producer whose credits include The Hangover, which is the highest grossing R-rated comedy of all time. In 2013, Scott left the film world to work in criminal justice reform and founded the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. He's just returned with the new production company One Community, which funds film projects focused on social justice. Film producer Scott Budnick took a break from Hollywood to focus on criminal justice reform. He's the founder of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition and is now back making films. This is a story about a hotshot Hollywood producer who quit so he could work in perhaps the least glamorous environment available, prison. The difference between us is that we had parents that cared about us. We had positive adults in our lives that kind of gave us a path. And we had some wealth and some resources. But what if you're a child that has none of that? I also got that these were children and they had the ability to change and they wanted to change. And the kid sitting next to me had just gotten sentenced at 15 years old to 300 years in prison. Hi, this is Scott Budnick, and I'm fighting to create a criminal justice system based in redemption and healing. Sorry, not sorry. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start by talking a little bit about your earlier career. You produced films like Old School and The Hangover Trilogy. How did you get into production and what was your life like as you were making these movies? Yeah, I came out from Atlanta right after college and was very lucky to get in with Todd Phillips on my first job. But it wasn't simple. After graduating from college, I came out to L.A. and it took me six months to find something and a lot of ramen soup and macaroni and cheese and dozens of people turning me down to finally end up in what was my dream job. I went back to Atlanta and worked on road trip with Todd. And from then on, we were together for 16 years. And I started off as a production assistant, moved up to a casting assistant, moved up to his assistant. And then by the time we were doing old school, I was the president of his company and producing his films. It was a 16-year partnership. It was absolutely amazing. Had literally life-changing experiences being in Vegas, doing The Hangover. It was really surreal. At first, we lived in Caesar's Palace for about a month and a half. And it was a time where Bradley, Ed, and Zach were not huge stars. So we could walk around the casino, we could gamble, we could go to dinners, we could go places without much hoopla. And no one knew what that movie was going to be. We knew we had something special. We knew it was great. But ultimately, no one knew what it was going to be. And so when we returned to Vegas for Hangover 3, it was a whole different story. They couldn't walk through a hotel, walk through a casino. And it was just, you know, just... Being able to work on films like that, spend all day laughing, and it was a beautiful 16 years. It was really wonderful. It really is amazing how, like, when all of the movie gods are aligned, how that can be such a truly magical experience. As I am someone who has been doing this for 30 years and felt as though even in my most financially successful times or my most successful times, I felt like there was more, 
right? That there was more that I should be doing with my life or my platform. And I feel like you and I have that in common. So I want to talk a little bit about what made you leave the industry back when you left the industry. It's a pretty, as you know, pretty ballsy move. Yeah. I mean, I came out here and for the first four years, it was like trying to kind of rise up in the business. And so it was lunches and dinners and it was just this bubble this entertainment industry bubble. And we're not the only one that has it. The political world has it, right? And DC and tech world has it. But I felt like I was trapped in this bubble where every conversations were about writers, directors, and actors, and no conversations were about real substance or real change. And I was just frustrated. I was frustrated living here. I was frustrated with the business. It wasn't fulfilling. And a friend of mine who I worked on old school with said, Well, I know you told me you followed this story kind of in the criminal justice system about these kids that were sent to prison for a long time. And I teach this creative writing class in juvenile hall. So do you want to come in one Saturday morning with me and be like a guest speaker in my class? And I mean, what was I going to do? Do the same thing I do every Saturday morning is like sleep in, go to the beach. I'm like, yeah, I'll go to a juvenile hall on a Saturday morning. That sounds fascinating. And I went down to Silmar Juvenile Hall and I walked in and it was like a prison within a prison. There was this area called the compound where kids were being tried as adults. And I went in there and sat down in this unit, these folding table and chairs in a hallway, and these 10 kids walked in. And minus the tattoos and some kind of hard looks, they looked like kids. They looked like little kids. And I turned to the young man next to me, who was 15, and I said, how was your week? And he said, it was a really tough week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life. Mm. And I said, what happened? And he said, I stood next to my friend who shot the victim in the butt. The victim was in and out of the hospital in a day. And for standing next to the person with the gun, I'm going to prison for 300 years of life. And like, it didn't take much rocket science for me to understand, like, if that was my kid with my skin tone and my resources, they would absolutely be out on bail. They wouldn't be sitting in that juvenile hall. And they would be probably getting probation and not spending one day in prison for not shooting a gun that barely injured somebody. But because David had none of that, because he was from foster care, he was going to prison for 300 years of life. And that was just fundamentally effed up. And so I told those kids on that day, like, I'm here, I'm here till the wheels fall off. Like, if you guys are willing to make these transformations, I'm here for you the whole time. I said, in fact, I'm gonna start teaching this writing class every Saturday morning, which I did in 2004 and still do now. And it just took me on this deep dive into the criminal justice system where even in that first class, there was a kid named Adam who was going to prison for six years. And at the end of class, like his hands were shaking. And he said, when I get out like six years from now, like, can I get your number? Like, I really want to redeem myself and make my mom proud. And I said, here's my number. And literally when we were in pre-production on the hangover, I get this call and it's Adam and he had just gotten out. And I said, show up at 6 a.m. Don't be late. Come work your butt off. And you have an internship, $12 an hour. And Adam showed up at three in the morning and had an attitude of gratitude. And worked harder than anybody. At the end of it, my prep master said, this is the greatest guy. I'm taking him to Iron Man. I'm putting him in the union. Adam got into the union, went from $12 an hour to $48 an hour. And then his four brothers got into the union. And between all of them, they make probably half a million dollars a year and have lifted their entire family out of poverty. And I just became this producer that was like doing all this work in jails and prisons and juvenile halls. And at the end and after Hangover 3, I just said, you know what? I'm getting so much joy from this side of my life but not as much joy from sitting on set and making films. And so I took a 90% pay cut and I left the business and started a nonprofit. And those were the best five years of my life. It's an incredible story. I need to know what the people in your life said when you made this decision. 
I mean, listen, you know the business. It's like people think you're crazy. You're leaving every position of power and going to not being able to do anything for anyone and losing money and leaving Todd Phillips when he was at his highest. And God bless him. Like he allowed me to do it. He was so gracious. And I'll be honest with you. It's like, I did not focus on the people that no longer returned my call. I focused on the people that when I had nothing that could help them, they stood up to help me. More importantly, stood up to help the people that I love so much and the people that I was fighting for, right? And so I got to give it up to people like Patty Jenkins, who when I couldn't do anything for her, said, I really love what you're doing and I want to support you and I want to support this. I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be all about prison, but once you get near it and you start to see the people who truly deserve another chance... And they can't get it, you know, because maybe they've already changed. Maybe they never did anything in the first place. Maybe they were in a gang. Maybe something. There's no pathway out for those people. Um, many years later, I got to make a movie about uh, a Wonder Woman, a, 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 the same girl, like a similar kind of girl who gets a different path in life and gets a different chance. And she gets to be the hero she always wanted to be. I got to give it up to Common and John Legend and Kim Kardashian and people that have gotten deeply involved in ARC, my nonprofit, and the cause and have used their platform for this, agents and managers and producers and directors who have stepped up and really been helpful. So like, I didn't focus on the people that didn't really give a shit. Like, I focused on the people who, when I couldn't do anything for them, they stepped up to do stuff for the people that I was advocating for and had just huge respect for them. Those people, I feel like they do float to the top. I mean, I find it in the activism work that I do. There are a handful of people, maybe five tops, that I know that I can go to that will support the cause, the issue, what I'm trying to do, sign their names on letters, deliver petitions if they're in the state. But there's only like five of them. Maybe there's not even five of them. It's Mark Ruffalo. It's Deborah Messing. God bless the two of them. Yeah, exactly. So it just gets to this point where I just wound up being resentful, <laughs> where I was like, wait a minute. So I've been getting asked this question because when we're doing this interview right now, there's the big runoff in Georgia. And so I've been getting this question pretty much from different organizers every day about like, what shows are shooting in Georgia and can we get those celebrities? And I was like, guys, if celebrities wanted to get political, the last four years would have been a pretty good time to do it. And if they didn't choose to do it, a runoff after we already want, this is not going to be the thing that makes them go, oh, you know what? I'm going to stand up for the people of Georgia when they had the opportunity during the abortion ban bill or they had the opportunity during the religious freedom bill. So it does become like your world almost gets way smaller when all of a sudden you are asking people to stand up for shit that their audience or the people that buy the tickets might not agree with. I found myself getting bitter as well. And I just ultimately realized some people are just never going to do it because they're narcissists. And it's just not in their DNA to be selfless and do things for others. But I think there's a huge swath of people who currently are not helping me and not helping you just out of ignorance, right? Or out of fear. They don't understand how to use their platform if they don't have a platform, they just don't know how to step in and volunteer, right? They don't know 
how they can contribute. They don't know if they're good enough. They don't understand the issue enough. They have fear that they don't understand the issue and will sound stupid, right? And so I just focused on the Mark Ruffalo's and Deborah Messings, like the people that really did step up. I think social justice is 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 probably the uh, the very uh, essence of of all of the great kind of spiritual teachings throughout the world. Um, that um, that is my brother. That you are a thou, and that uh, and that um, without that justice, there can't be any greater justice. In the last four years, I would go to people's Twitter feed and I'd be like, let's see what this person is saying. Surely there's got to be something on their Twitter timeline about, you know, kids being in cages and nope nothing. They're selling a dress or whatever it is. And so it's just become really frustrating. And I get it. Like people are, especially actors, it's scary putting yourself out there and trolling is a real thing. People are really into hurting people with an opinion. But my God, how much more money do you need? Like if you're not going to use your platform... You know, I was so excited, so excited, Scott, that The Rock came out and endorsed a candidate. And it made me realize, like, I shouldn't be this excited <laughs> about someone using their platform to do what's right for the nation and for American people. Like, this shouldn't be something where I'm, like, calling my mom, going, Mom, did you see? Like, you know, and I think that says something. It's like you have to see the people who are not worried about their money or their bottom line. When the NBA boycott happened and they started putting Black Lives Matters on jerseys and teams started standing up for racial justice, I heard from so many owners that, they lost a certain percentage of their season ticket holders because Trump was making it political, right? And so their season ticket holders were like, I'm not about this Black Lives Matter. I'm not about this racial justice stuff that you're doing. And literally, it hurt their bottom line. But the owners I admire, like Jeannie Buss, who owns the Lakers, when that happened, she doubled down. She says, like, right is right. I'm going to be fine. We're going to be fine. I'm not going to stop talking about equality and racial justice just because some season ticket holders don't want to renew their season tickets. I really want to embrace those people that see it yeah. hurting the pocketbook, see it hurting their business temporarily, but know in the long run, this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do the right thing. And so it's like everyone wants to hate on Kim Kardashian. It's like the fact that Kim will use her 190 million Instagram followers and is going to fight her ass off for an innocent black man on death row and is going to go to the White House and hold her nose to stand next to Donald Trump to try to get him to pardon a grandmother who's serving a life sentence for marijuana. And when I ask her, are you worried about your fans? She says, I don't care. Right is right. Why am I not going to go and talk to a president, whether I like him or dislike him, if it could help this woman who is spending the rest of her life in prison for some barbaric, unjust, racist laws? 
for people like you, Alyssa, and others who stand up for equality and stand up for these issues, I just have huge love for you. I've always loved Kim Kardashian for many reasons. And I was shocked at not only the way we're so able to build people up and worship them and then sort of tear them down, which I think is what happens a lot. But also you look at people like Van Jones, who could not be more of a progressive leader, in my opinion, and yet got just raked over the coals because he chose to work with Trump and potentially give Trump a win and what that meant for the progressive movement. And it was such bullshit. It still drives me nuts because here's this guy who's worked. I love him. Three successful progressive organizations that he has started. The work that he did is true progress. So this whole idea of the progressive community choosing who gets what and who gets the credit and why, it's really, it's going to hurt the movement, but also it impacts how many people can be positively impacted by people like Kim Kardashian, who, God bless her and all the work that she's putting into it and she's doing it without fanfare and doing it in a way that I think she's leading with her heart and with love. So I want to talk about the issue of mass incarceration and I want to talk about it specific to the state of California. What leads to mass incarceration in California? We have had policies for so many years that criminalized addiction, criminalize mental illness, We had the scare in the 90s where the conservatives and even some liberals wanted to talk about super predators, juvenile super predators who were born to be violent and gang members. And that theory has now been debunked. But what it did was ratchet up sentencing and ratchet up what we did to people who were part of a gang or had committed a crime. And happening regionally, the Arizona Supreme Court says a state law that creates harsher sentences for people who threaten others only because they belong to a gang is unconstitutional. Tuesday's unanimous decision said the law violates the U.S. Constitution's due process clause because it enhances criminal penalties even if gang membership is not involved in the underlying crime. There's something about California and even the United States where sentencing somebody to 25 years to life is not enough. We have to put what's called enhancements on it, which is the norm, where if you used a gun during the commission of the crime, you get a 25 year to life enhancement. So now you have 50 to life. And then if you were in a gang, you get another 25 year to life. So you now have 75 years to life. And then we feel like we've gotten our pound of flesh and that's enough punishment where literally the rest of the world, every industrialized country in the world stops at 20 to life, right? And so we're so out of whack. We're the only country in the world that would sentence a juvenile, a child to life without parole, to die in prison. No other country in the world. And so these policies just led to the prison population. We went from nine prisons 30 years ago to 35 prisons today. We went from 10,000 people in prison to 170,000 people in prison in California. And the crazy part is to incarcerate one juvenile in the state of California costs $310,000 a year to incarcerate one kid. You could send them to Harvard for six years for what it takes to incarcerate them. And the crazy part is we do such a bad job of helping them rehabilitate while they're inside. 
there's data and evidence that says this is exactly what a kid needs to change their life. And we send them into a system that does none of that. And ultimately, seven out of 10 that come out end up recidivating, going back into prison. And if I was the CEO and I made a product that cost $310,000 and seven out of 10 of those products failed, I would be fired. The company would be bankrupt. But for the last hundred years, this is what we've done. And this is why conservatives and Republicans have said, no, we like small government. We like fiscal prudence. Evangelicals like redemption, right? And so it's like the only bipartisan issue on the planet because this makes no sense. It doesn't make financial sense. It doesn't make human sense. We're ripping black and brown males, fathers out of their communities for decades. Kids are growing up without their fathers. It's just enough's enough. This is not how you solve the problem. It's not even how you keep the public safe. I just got chills all over my body because it's just beyond my comprehension how anyone could think that this is a good system. Can I tell you some of the progress that has been made, though? Please. Because that was up until about eight years ago. We were able to pass a law called SB9, which ended the practice of life without parole for juveniles. And then the next year passed SB260 that stopped sending kids to prison for these long sentences. And so David Negretti, who I told you got 300 years to life that I met when I first went to juvenile hall, I was able to go tell him that he's now, because of this law, reduced to 25 years to life. And then two years ago, I was able to go back and tell him, congratulations, David, because you graduated college and transformed your life and did these incredible things over the last decade. Governor Brown has commuted your sentence and you're now immediately eligible for parole. And so we've been able to really turn the juvenile sentencing laws on its head. We were able to pass Prop 47, which decriminalized a lot of drug crimes, where we sent people to prison for decades just for being addicts rather than treating their addiction as a public health issue. And so we've been able, through ARC, to work on 26 different bills, which changed the criminal justice system in California. And now we've elected a very progressive district attorney in Los Angeles named George Gascone who said he's no longer going to seek the death penalty in Los Angeles. He's no longer going to charge three strikes and send nonviolent people to prison for 25 to life. He's no longer going to try children as adults, which we know doesn't help public safety and doesn't help people rehabilitate. And he's going to stop the use of enhancements and stop charging cash bail, where if a poor person is not dangerous, they sit in prison, but a rich person is dangerous, they can pay their way out. That makes no sense doesn't make sense for public safety. It criminalizes poverty. And so we are looking at a much different day in Los Angeles. And tell me about the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. What are some of the programs that it offers and what does it do? No one can pronounce that. So I'm proud of you that you got that right. Nine out of 10 people don't. I practiced. <laughs> I love it. In fact, I was working with Robert Downey Jr. on due date and he was building his own nonprofit. And he said, wait, what if we called ourselves the Anti-Recidivism Coalition? I'm like, that's interesting. It actually teaches someone a word and we call it ARC or ARC, which is much easier. I like that. And when he didn't use it for his nonprofit, I said, Robert, can I, uh, you mind if I steal that? That was uh, Robert Downey Jr. Thank him for helping us with that. But it's incredible. I mean, at first we started as a support group for people coming out of prison of surround them with a positive community and positive peers that help them into college and into jobs and into a life they always dreamed of. Then went to like providing direct services. So we created housing programs and mentorship programs and career programs. We have the largest construction union program and had dozens, if not a hundred of our ARC members building the Ram Stadium as union construction workers. We created the first union firefighting program for folks that fought fires while they were in prison, made a dollar an hour, risked their lives, but came out to no opportunity because they had a felony on their record. 
Of the 13,000 firefighters battling blazes across California, more than 2,500 are incarcerated. While salaried firefighters earn an annual mean wage of $74,000 a year plus benefits, prisoners earn a dollar per hour when fighting active fires. We're able to change the law and change policy and work with Governor Brown to start a fire camp in Ventura County for people coming out of prison to be firefighters for the rest of their lives and save our communities and save homes, created therapy programs and healing programs and restorative justice programs, but then really realized that it was those who had spent time in prison, like David, who I tell you about, or Adam, who went into the union, that it's their stories that change people's hearts and minds about who's in the system and leading with them, walking the halls of Sacramento, And it was their leadership and a coat and tie sitting down with legislators that led to these 26 laws being passed. And so it was just an unbelievable experience being able to start that organization and run that experience, that organization for five years. Well, I mean, obviously, it brings you such great pride, and that is awesome. And you started it at a time when this was an issue that a lot of people weren't discussing, right? I mean, you were pretty ahead of your time as far as like publicly talking about how the system just does not work. And so I'm wondering if you've seen the conversation shift since you've started and since the Black Lives Matter movement and how much of what you do now is to break down really the historic and systemic racism and how that has influenced the prison system. When I started this in 2000, actually in 1996, when I first got involved, nobody was talking about it. And in fact, I remember when we were going to Sacramento and trying to pass this law to stop sending juveniles to prison till they die, people were calling them monsters. People were calling them animals. People were just using the most foul language. And you've seen it change over the last decade to where people are really understanding the humanity of everyone involved, right? Like there's obviously the humanity of the victim, of someone that was hurt during the commission of the crime the family of the victim who may have lost a loved one. But there's also the humanity of those who, as a 14-year-old, 15 years old, and when they say hurt people, hurt people, that's not an exaggeration. Like the kids I've worked with were victims of just awful abuse and sexual abuse and physical abuse and domestic violence and foster care for so many years of their life before they ever decided to victimize anyone else. And to be able to show the humanity of their transformation and to see them heal and working on themselves in a prison system that is brutal, to see them go to college in prison, to see them go to church in prison and become pastors, to see them find themselves and really make this incredible transformation and have insight into what made them commit a crime and insight into how they want to come home and heal their communities today. Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, always says, if you bring people proximate to human suffering, they will change and change the world. And it really is bringing people proximate to the stories of those who are incarcerated, the stories of those who are formerly incarcerated that show them the shared humanity and the shared values between all of us. I don't think the ideas of redemption or mercy or grace or justice and fairness are not democratic or liberal or progressive principles, Mm -hmm. and they're not Republican principles. They're human principles. Some of them are even biblical. And so I think once people see the humanity, it's very easy for those who are opposed to reform to use fear to stop reform, right? Because there are some awful crimes that happen and people do some awful things and they never should get out of prison, right? But it's the most awful thing that happens that they latch onto and use to scare the community, right? And it is the stories of human transformation and redemption 
that make people less scared, make voters less scared. And we've seen that happen over the last 10, 15 years. My listeners have heard me say this phrase way too often. Anytime we politicize, we dehumanize. And anytime that we can get past the politics of it and actually see it for what it is and I think redemption, reconciliation, all of these things are really important for human progress. It's not even about personal goals. It's about humanity and human progress. I'm wondering what this work has taught you about your own humanity. That's a great question. There was a time when I was teaching my class and I don't know how to be a teacher, right? Like I'm not trained as a teacher. So I just came in and just tried to be me and try to inspire. But I was doing way too much talking and not enough listening. And there was a time where a kid I loved named Chris called me from court about eight o'clock at night and says, I'm about to get on the bus back to the jail. And I was just sentenced to two life without parole sentences. So once I die in prison, I have another sentence to go. Sentencing a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole, basically you just throwing the key away on them. It sends the message that children aren't worth a second chance. It's like being thrown to a pack of wolves. And he goes, Can you come to? juvenile hall when I get there and talk to me. So I went to juvenile hall at nine o'clock at night and I'm driving there and I'm like, what do I say to a kid that where a judge just called him a monster and said, you were going to die in prison. The judge told him this. So I call the Catholic chaplain, Jesuit chaplain. And I said, what do I do? And he said, Scott, it's not about what you say. It's about the power of presence. It's about Chris knowing that you're there for him and you care and you're not going anywhere. And through thick and thin, you're going to be there for him. So just go there and be present. And that was the best advice I was ever given. It's something I incorporated into my classes, something I've incorporated into every part of my life, even my marriage. And it even has made me reflect on trauma I've had earlier in my life. No trauma that can compare to anything they've been through, but things I even needed to work on with myself that was affecting me today, 30 years later. And so I went to therapy to deal with these small traumas. And it really made me appreciate like, if you're a 14-year-old kid, and you've been physically abused, sexually abused, you've witnessed enormous domestic violence in your house, you've had friends shot and killed in front of you, and now you're enduring the trauma of prison itself and losing your freedom and being separated from your family, et cetera. Those aren't things that just go away by going to college and changing your life and getting a job. Like That requires deep therapy and healing and restoration. And so it just made me do that work on myself so I could be a better mentor and be a better friend to those inside so they can feel comfortable doing it for themselves as well. It is crazy how this work does reflect back on our own damage almost. When I sent out the Me Too tweet three years ago... I remember that well. Yeah. I thought that I had 
really done all the work that I needed to do on my own trauma and my own healing. And after I sent that tweet, when I started having women share about their own sexual trauma, it triggered everything inside of me that I hadn't dealt with. And I had to go sort of deep and deal with those wounds. And I don't think, well, I could say for certain because I I have these two amazing kids, but I certainly now would not have been the time where I would have chosen to dive into that. And especially then, three years ago, my son was six, my daughter was three, and I was shooting a show in Atlanta. And I sent out that tweet, not even thinking of what it would do for me or to me. But the reflection of people feeling that I was showing up for the work made me have to show up for myself and my family in a different way than I had thought I had ever needed to do. And I can look at a lot of personal growth in my life and see how it's run parallel to my activism and the work that I've done throughout 30 years of trying to fight for injustices. So in a way, it is so symbiotic. And I was just wondering if you felt that as well. I mean, beyond. By the way, God bless you for everything you've done, Alyssa. You're definitely a hero of mine. And yeah, I mean, all these kids always say to me, young men now, young women, why do you do this? Like, why do you care so much? And I say, don't get it twisted. I can promise you, you're doing more for me than I'm doing for you. It's so true. And the crazy part is, it's like you and I and anyone in this business really We have such a platform and people put us on such a pedestal that sometimes it's sending one email can save somebody's life, right? Sometimes sending one email can get someone out of prison. Sometimes sending one email can get someone housing or put into a great career or onto a film set to get into the union, right? And so we can affect so much change so easily. I always tell this story about when I first went to Sacramento and I didn't know how I was going to make a difference, but I said, you know, I'm just going to show up and then I'll figure it out. And to pass this bill, we had to get the bill failed seven years in a row. We were two votes short and we needed the speaker of the assembly to be able to get the final two votes. And finally, I got this message. The speaker wants to see you. And I go into the speaker's office and I'm not Alyssa Milano. I'm not Bradley Cooper. I'm not Michael B. Jordan. I'm like one of 12 producers on The Hangover. And I walk into the speaker's office and he's got four posters on the table, hangover posters. He's got two photographers. And they're taking my picture. I'm signing posters. And I sit down with him and he says, okay, I know we're not here to talk about the hangover. We're here to talk about SB9. What do you need? I said, you're your Democrats and are not voting for this bill. And he said, I'm gonna call these two people right now, go down to their offices, talk to them. I'm sure you can get them. And we were able to pass the bill. A new law will protect juveniles from prosecution in adult court, even if they kill someone. The goal is to shift the emphasis from punishment to rehabilitation. And it wasn't just me, it was many others that that helped do that. But I understood what incredible power we have and how little we have to do to help people that don't have access to that type of power. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is I'm not sweating or working that hard in trying to do this because we're just leveraging the platform that we already have. But what I get from this, how this fuels my entire life, the inspiration I get, my reason to exist. Just two days ago, two kids that just got out of the youth authority came over to my house and we sat in my backyard around a fire pit and both of them are going to be firefighters. And at the end of it, they said, man, you inspire us so much. I said, no, you don't understand. This gives me fuel for the next month. Knowing you guys made it through this, seeing you not in a prison uniform, knowing you're going to guys are going to go out and be Cal Fire firefighters 
I'm going to save people homes. Like I was in such a funk. This COVID thing had me feeling some sort of way. And you guys just like gave me the will to keep going for the next three months. And I get so much more out of this than anything I could ever give. And it's what frustrates me and frustrates you. We have people all around us that have these kinds of platforms. And I just don't think they understand how much of an impact they can make and how great it is. I think they understand. I think that they have a totally different reward center in their brain. I think that their reward center is working on a whole different level of success than mine is because I'm very content where my career is at this point. But there are people that would be in my position that would want more and that would look at the work that I do as something that would hinder that. And so I think that people just have different expectations of their own success. But my thing is like, at what point is it enough? In the last four years, just our democracy being threatened, decency being threatened, everything, this horrible monster in the White House, and people are still not using their platforms, even in a nonpartisan way. It drives me crazy. And I've had people say to me, yeah, no, I can't sign on to that letter about you know, the abortion ban in Atlanta because, you know, my audience is, they're made up of Christians. And it's like, wait, what? Okay, so I can't even wrap my head around what they are saying to me. It's frustrating. But it fuels the work that I do. And I feel like, you know, maybe there is every so often someone that looks at the work that I do and is inspired. There's a young actress named Angelica Washington who has really stepped up I met her when we were both surrogates for Biden. And in the last two months, there has been not one thing that I've asked her to do or sign her name on to where she has not felt like she could do it. And she has done it without question and without a second thought. She's like, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. That's the right thing. Let's go. And she's at the beginning of her career. So I'm hopeful that that generation, the generation that sees the Parkland kids, that sees Greta, this younger generation that's coming up can look upon that work that they do and say, you know what, this is part of success. Part of success is helping people. Part of success is doing the right thing. What do you think is the biggest challenge in criminal justice today, right now? I think the biggest challenge is just fear, right? It's like when you have a president that talks about these thugs and murderers that are crossing our borders. Has Trump set the criminal justice reform movement back, do you think? Yeah, for sure. There were little things that he did, but overall, the rhetoric is unhelpful. I mean, because the truth of the matter is Democrat, Republican, I mean, there's values that we all share. There's things that we agree upon. And I feel like he has just pulled people to the extremes, divided people, made people live in their differences, not in the things that make people similar. I think the fear factor of your communities are dangerous and even the make America great again and what that even signifies is fear-based. But I also feel like, again, the solution is changing hearts and minds. It's not even just changing laws. It's changing the individual hearts and minds of every person out there, every mother, every father, every Christian, every Muslim, every Catholic, every Republican, every Democrat, no matter what labels we put on people, it's changing hearts and minds. And really that's why I'm back in the entertainment business. Let's kick things off with the Hollywood rap. If they get away with this now, what's gonna happen later? Jamie Foxx has been on the front line of the protest to end racism. You only know what you're into down here in Alabama? 
when you're guilty from the moment you're born. Now Jamie's film, Just Mercy, is available for everyone to watch at home. And that's why we made Just Mercy, and that's why we're going to be making four to six movies a year, because I really believe that we have the power in this business to deeply move culture and to create empathy and to tell stories that make people empathize, understand issues better, and to lead them into action. And so although it's the biggest issue today, I think it's the thing that I'm most excited to attack. There's nothing more powerful than storytelling. So it is really, really important. So tell us more about One Community. One Community is really the kind of storytelling apparatus of not just in the world of criminal justice reform, but in all issues of social justice, racial justice, economic justice, immigration, refugees, women and girls, the equity that they deserve, education reform, people struggling with mental health and addiction, like all of these issues of inequality, to be able to tell stories that humanize people. I remember meeting a guy at a party when I was running ARC that kind of ran the political movement for marriage equality. And I asked him, like, what was the game changer that had you take this issue off the table entirely? And he looks at me and he says, Will and Grace and Glee and Ellen DeGeneres and Brokeback Mountain and Milk and Modern Family, right? It was this decade of culture stories that moved people, that created empathy, that softened opposition. And I knew that we could create a company and ultimately raise $50 million to start it to make film and television that moved hearts and minds. We wanted to go entertainment first, right? We don't want to serve people vegetables or make them take their medicine. It's kind of entertainment first. But with everything we're going to do, we run a massive impact campaign that's focused on changing hearts and minds, raising money for organizations that need it, and changing laws. And so we made Just Mercy on August 13th, our next film, which is Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic with Jennifer Hudson playing Aretha and Mary J. Blige and Forrest Whitaker and Marlon Wayans. That's going to come out August 13th. And it is a unbelievably emotional, fun, exciting, moving film that will run a great campaign around and scale up to four to six movies and TV shows a year to change hearts and minds around all these issues of inequality. Was it different coming back into Hollywood in 2019 after being gone for seven years? Did it seem like the industry changed at all? No. I mean, I think the same snakes and narcissists still exist, but I came back in really on my own terms saying, I'm going to create my circle with the people who share my values, who want to do good in the world, who want to help their fellow human being, that want to unite, that don't want to divide. And so it's the type of people that I'm really, that I'm fucking with. What an amazing journey. I mean, seriously, Scott, it's insane. I don't know if you are aware of how insane your journey is, but it's so cool. But it's like even the investors I work with. Two weeks ago, honored that Stephen Connie Ballmer, that owned the Clippers, right? And that from Microsoft came in as large investors in the company and WME as my lead investor and Kim Stewart and James Walton and Barry Sternlicht and Dan Loeb and Wes Edens, who owns the Milwaukee Bucks and Michael Rubin, who owns the 76ers. Like they're not in this solely to make money. They're in it because they want to make impact. They could have gone into Uber, Twitter, Instagram, or a million other things to make their 10X, right? They put money in this because they want to make an impact in the world, right? And these are the people that I'm surrounding myself with. That's who's on my board. That's who I talk to every day. And none of them are talking to me about how to make a ton more money or do this. They're talking to me, how do you impact these policies? How do you change people's lives? How do you use content to do these things? And the fact that we can have a business that's a double bottom line business that makes money and does a lot of good is just, this is the reason I'm in this now. It's very different for me. And do you think that we're at a point when people are ready for socially minded entertainment? Absolutely. And it's fun because like Just Mercy obviously was very much about 
reforming the criminal justice system, but we're buying things right now that are comedies, that are horror movies, that are doing similar things. So I think looking at making entertainment first and kind of hooking people with the entertainment of it all, with movie stars, is definitely what we want to do. But really, we want to give them tremendous empathy during the telling of the story and then drive them to action after they see it. And my last question is a question that I ask all of my guests because it always changes for people depending on where we are in the pandemic, it seems like. But what brings you hope? You know what? What brings me hope is the three times during this pandemic I was able to go into prison and sit with people who are going through so much more than I am having to deal with COVID in prison. This motherfucker over here dying from Corona. They got this motherfucker in my room. They literally leaving us in here to die. This is Aaron Campbell. He's an inmate at FCI Elkton, a low-security federal prison in Ohio. He's using a contraband cell phone, and he knows he's going to get in trouble for making this video. I was like, fuck it, you know, trying to keep this, well, the phone situation low-key, but, like, this shit's serious as fuck. Everybody in this bitch dying, and it's like, what the fuck y'all want me to do? Like, dying this bitch? Your only connections to family are gone. There's no visiting. If you are faith-based, there's no church, there's no college, there's no high school, there's no self-help programs. You're in your cell for most of the day. You watch your TV in your cell and you see people dying. You're worried about your family dying. You can't contact them. The prison cases right now are just off the hook. Prisons that hold 3,000 people, 1,500 people have COVID. Hundreds of people are dying. And being able to go in and sit with people and see their resilience during this, to see that they have hope, to see that they are inspired to change, to see that they really believe they're going to be out there with their families, that's what gives me hope. It's resilience, that kind of human spirit. We're so lucky. We're so blessed. And I try to live in that gratitude every day. Well, you're incredible. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. One, I love learning, and I've had some amazing professors that I really, really, really love. And, you know, being able to, the contrast of being in prison, it's like sitting in this class where, like, I'm having one of the, some of the most intellectual conversations of my life, and I'm talking about Socrates and Aristotle, and for a second I just pause and I'm like, I can't, like, you're, you're, having, you're talking about Aristotle right now, James, like, who are you? Growing up, I grew up with a very abusive family. Um, by a young age of 14, I was addicted to drugs, um, many of which my own father was giving me. You know, to finally being 17 years old, and by that time I had gone in and out of jail for quite some time, inside the juvenile hall, everybody gave up on me. They said, forget about him, he's never going to change. And the one thing that changed my life was that someone loved me. You know, something so simple yet so powerful. Listen, most people in my industry want to do the right thing. Most of us give our name, our time, and some of our money to causes we think are important. But it's rare to find someone like Scott who leaves the industry entirely to do the work on the ground. And it's even more rare to find a production company focused on funding projects that can change the world. Mission-driven financing matters. I've said this before, but art is one of the only things that can really change the world. It's what connects us across so many of the walls we put up. When we're talking with our families, our friends, and our coworkers about the latest hit movie or what happened on TV the night before, we're not stuck in our silos of Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. We're leading with human stories, connecting with characters and events that transcend those boundaries. 
Art is a conversation starter. A company like One Community will start conversations that will change the world. It's so important for producers in Hollywood to put their money where their mouths are, giving us art that we can talk about and use to change hearts. It's how we can move forward together. Well, I'm looking forward to what One Community comes up with next. And I'm hoping more producers in Hollywood follow in Scott's footsteps. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.